Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. It's good to see you. Open your Bible to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, which you are probably aware of now is not John chapter 10. We're taking a break from our series in John to look a couple weeks, I think, Lord willing, in Romans chapter 12. I was in South Africa last week and had a wonderful trip with uh, the saints there in Johannesburg, South Africa at Brackenhurst Baptist Church. You may remember a few years ago, their pastor, Doug Van Meter, came here and preached. He's been pastoring there for about 30 years. He's actually an American, but was, is been there in South Africa for many years and uh, is just, the church is just a wonderful, beautiful body of Christ. And you might remember Gareth Franks, the missionary Gareth and Carrie Franks. They're South Africans that were church planters in India that are now pastoring in Abu Dhabi in the United Arab Emirates. This church in South Africa is their sending church. And uh, Gareth is actually going to be with us the week after Easter in April, and he's going to be preaching, so looking forward to hearing from him. But it was just great to be with them, great to, uh, to, to be at the church there in Johannesburg, but it's great to be back. And here's what we're doing today, because we're going to have a couple guest speakers, Lord willing, at the end of this month, uh, Raphael Kajubi and his family from Uganda are going to be here, and he's going to preach. And so because we've got a, a couple guest speakers, and we want to get a flow into John chapter 10, um, which, like John chapter 9, is one of the most important chapters in John. <laughs> I, know, I know, you guys are sick of me saying that. Um, I think it would be good for us to, to spend some time uh, thinking about uh, what is in Romans chapter 12. I was flying back. I'm not a great flyer as I get older, um, and so I was listening to Tyler's wonderful message on 1 Corinthians 3, hoping it wasn't the last sermon I ever listened to as I was flying over the Atlantic. Um, and, and then I was thinking about what is on my heart. Some, a kind of, you know, two years ago, I was in South Africa when the world shut down with COVID, and there was thought that maybe you know, I might be stranded there, but Lord willing, I got back, praise God. And flying back from South Africa now on this two-year anniversary has made me think a little bit about what is the motivation for our time in Romans chapter 12, about where we are as a church, some things that I think we need to be thinking about. So uh, with that, let me read Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. This is a famous passage that many Christians uh, have loved for centuries I want us to focus on verses 1 and 2 this morning, and then, uh, Lord willing, next week, I think we'll look at the rest of chapter 12, a little bit of a practical application of, of what we're going to look at this morning. But let me read verses 1 and 2 of Romans chapter 12 and pray, and then we'll, we'll, we'll dig into this text. Paul writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers... By the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Amen. Let me pray and ask the Lord to help us think about 
this passage. Lord, uh, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. I pray that your word, which does endure forever, would be like a, a, a sharp two-edged sword that would, uh, that would divide between our soul and our spirit, or even our bone and the marrow, and Lord, that it, would, that it would lay bare the thoughts and intentions of our heart before you, and Lord, that you would not only wound us with your word, but that you would heal us with your word, and that you would make us more like Jesus, and that if there's any in this room that don't know you, Lord, that they would, they would see Christ, that your Holy Spirit would open their eyes and give them a new heart to believe, and Lord, build us more into the image of your Son. Help us, as Paul exhorts us here, to not be conformed to the world. Give us wisdom along these lines, I pray, and help me care for these brothers and sisters through the preaching of your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Well, here's my burden this morning. I want to explain verse 1, and then I want us to look at the first part of verse 2 where Paul says, do not be conformed to this world. So first, let's understand the context of of Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, and what Paul is saying here in verse 1. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship, or maybe the version of the Bible that you're reading from might say your reasonable or rational service. So I think very important in verse 1 of Romans chapter 12 is that word, therefore. It's a conjunction. It's, it's connecting what Paul is saying in verse 1 to, I think, essentially everything that he has said in Romans chapter 1 through 11. So in, in order for us to understand the, the exhortation that he's telling us here to give yourselves to God, we need to, we need to really understand what he said before. In Romans, as we've said many, many times, maybe my favorite book in the Bible, along with Colossians and Ephesians, is, is Paul's m- most glorious, thorough explanation of the gospel. And so, just by way of summary, we remember in Romans chapter 1, when Paul opens up and he just gives this greeting, and then, and then around verse 16, he says that, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe, to the Jew and to the Greek. And then in the second part of Romans chapter 1, he, he's building this argument that the wrath of God is, 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 has shown itself to all of mankind. And the early parts of Romans, Romans chapter 1, really through Romans chapter 3, is Paul building this argument that all mankind whether we are Gentiles, which is most of us in this room, or whether we are God's people, specifically ethnically Israel in the Old Testament, that we're all guilty. He concludes in Romans chapter 3 by saying that all of us, all of us before a holy God, because of the law that is written on our hearts or the law that is written on tablets, that we have all transgressed, that we have all disobeyed, that the wrath of God is revealed against all mankind. That's Paul's argument in Romans chapter 1, 2, and 3. And his conclusion midway through Romans chapter 3 is that the whole world is silenced. Nobody can be justified by the works of the law. 
Whether it's the law that's written on the tablet of stone for Israel or it's the law that's written on our hearts just as human beings, we all have a conscience and we all have this kind of law of nature that we all transgress. And God's indictment, Paul's indictment through the Holy Spirit is that we are all guilty. But in the end of Romans chapter 3, he starts now with the glorious good news of the gospel. And here's the dilemma of Romans. How is a righteous God going to still preserve his righteousness, still preserve his holiness, but actually save unrighteous people who can do nothing to make themselves righteous? So how is the unrighteous going to be reconciled with the righteous when the unrighteous can do nothing to make themselves righteous? How is that going to happen? And that's the burden of the second part of Romans chapter 3. Paul says, but now a righteousness, a way of being reconciled to God has been revealed apart from the law and it is in the person of Jesus Christ. He comes and he obeys the law for his people and he offers himself up as a, and this is a very important biblical word. If you've been around Crosspoint for any length of time, I hope you know this word. You should know this word. It's the word propitiation, that Jesus becomes a sacrifice, an atonement, a wrath-bearing sacrifice for the sins of his people. And he turns God's wrath, God's punishment, God's judgment, judgment into God's favor and grace. That's what Jesus is doing on the cross in his life, his perfect law-abiding life and his sacrificial death and his victorious resurrection. Jesus becomes our propitiation and absorbs, extinguishes, satisfies God's wrath. And the way, and this is the key, the way that that propitiation actually becomes somebody's, the way somebody receives that is through, not by works, not by their righteousness, not by their good intentions, but through the gift of faith that God gives a person when he intends to save them. And so faith then that a person must exercise in Jesus to receive the benefits of their punishment being taken away and his righteousness being given to them isn't something that the sinner brings to the table, but it is a gift of God. He gives it to them. He opens up our heart. He makes it alive. And the first breath of that new heart is faith in Jesus. Now, Paul then in Romans chapter four says, because he knows his audience, like any good preacher, and he says, yeah, but you know, he's speaking primarily to Jews. And he says, no, I know what you're thinking. What about Abraham, this great guy in the Old Testament? Was he not even Abraham? Paul, are you telling me that even Abraham, Father Abraham, many sons, many sons had Father Abraham, and I am one of them. Even Father Abraham was not saved by his works? And Paul says, yes, exactly. Even Abraham, this great obedient Jew, was not saved by his works because even Abraham, it says in Genesis 15 that he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. In other words, Abraham is not saved by his obedience or by anything he did, but God gave Abraham faith and Abraham exercised it in God and Abraham received righteousness or in a sense a kind of Old Testament version of the shadow of salvation through faith. And then Paul goes into Romans chapter 5, and now that he's established his argument, he says, now, friends, do you see this? We are justified by, with God, we have peace with God through faith. And now 
We were dead in our sins. We were in Adam, and death reigned through Adam. He was like our first. By the way, all of us are related. We're like cousins, every one of us. We're brothers and sisters. We all come from one man, Adam, and we all inherit the sinful nature of Adam. And death, sin that we get from our father, Adam, comes to us. Sin comes to us by nature and by choice. And the consequence of that sin is spiritual death. We are separated from God. But when God gives us a new heart, gives us faith, he takes us from this old man, Adam, and he places us in this new head, which is Christ. And now where death reigned in Adam, life and grace and righteousness reigns in Christ. That's his argument in Romans chapter 5. You were in Adam, but now you're in Christ if you are a believer in Jesus. And oh, by the way, just in case you're wondering, because we all know that we still struggle with sin, he says in Romans chapter 6, this sin that you still deal with isn't there so that you can just wallow in it, but now, because you've been united with Christ by faith, because you've been joined to him, because you now are made alive, you have died with him in your old self, you've been resurrected with him, now you must make war on your remaining sin and live for your new master which is Christ. That's Romans chapter 6. And oh, oh, what about this law? Paul's Paul's again a good preacher. He understands his audience. What about this law, this Old Testament law? What was the purpose of this law? I mean, this law convicts me. It, It reminds me that the things that I want to do, I can't do, and the things that I shouldn't do, I do. So what's the role of the law? Paul's conclusion at the end of Romans chapter 7 is that the role of the law is to produce in us not self-righteousness or not a sense of confidence that we can save ourselves by our law abiding or by our works, but a sense of despair of ourselves. And Paul's conclusion at the end of Romans chapter 7 is, oh, what a wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death, this sin that reigns in my body still to some degree? Who is it? It's Christ. And so even the law, the good law of God, which was never intended to save, but was intended to show us our need for Christ, pushes us to the Savior, which is Jesus. And therefore, he concludes, in what surely must be the very tip of the Mount Mount Everest of Scripture, Romans chapter 8, therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because he has made you alive, he's joined you to Christ, you've been forgiven, you're saved not by works, but by faith, through grace, in the work of Christ. And the conclusion then at the end of Romans chapter 8 is, therefore, what shall separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, neither death nor life, nor angels nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Hallelujah, amen, and amen. And then again, because Paul's a good preacher, and he understands his audience, Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11, he says, well, what about the Old Testament Jews, so many of them that seem to have rejected God? Does that mean that God has failed? And his conclusion in Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11 is, no, 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 no. He says that what it truly means to be a Jew is not to be descended from the flesh, but to be a Jew inwardly, a a, a Jew. It means not to be circumcised of the flesh, but to be circumcised of your heart. And so, He's saying, ultimately, all of these pictures in the Old Testament, these physical pictures of the nation of Israel, 
We're shadows pointing to the reality of the new covenant, which comes to us not by ethnicity, not by heritage, but by faith in Jesus. And Paul's saying, really, the whole Old Testament was ultimately about the gospel. And then he circles back around and he's saying, just because God is so good, God's not done with ethnic Israel yet. And I believe what he's speaking about at the end of Romans chapter 11 is that at some point in the future, or maybe just through the centuries, I don't know exactly how God will do it, but God will, is not done with ethnic Israel yet. And the branch that he cut off, unbelieving Israel, the branch from the tree of Christ that he cut off, unbelieving Israel, a great number of them, by his sovereign grace and by his mercy, he will regraft a great number of ethnic Jews back to the tree of Christ and they will believe. And his conclusion in all of this at the end of Romans chapter 11 is, how inscrutable and how unsearchable is the wisdom and judgment of God. For from him and to him and through him are all things. So friends, Romans chapter 1 verse chapter 1 through 11 is the gospel. It's the glorious news of the fact that you were dead in your sins. You had no hope. You had the wrath of God bearing down on you if you are a believer. And by his pure, mere, unadulterated, sovereign, unconditional, rich in mercy, grace, he saved you. Not for yourself, but so that Romans chapter 1, verse 11, chapter, chapter 12, verse 1, so that you might present yourself as a living sacrifice. And that's why he adds on the end of verse 1. Friends, in light of everything that God has done in the gospel through Jesus Christ to save people like us, this is just our reasonable, rational, this just makes sense that we would want to give ourselves to God with everything that we have. And that's the good news of the gospel. That's what verse 1 is saying, I think. And then he says in verse 2, by the way, that's really good news. I know, I know, we're, I know we're, we're an hour light on sleep, but come, come on now. Come on, that's really great news. Friends, that's the gospel. Do you know that if you, if you are a Christian, you should never tire of hearing the glorious news? of the work of Christ, and if you are not a believer and you came in here, you, you heard, you heard, I think, a, a, a decent summary of the message of Romans, which I think is the message of the Bible. And so, so as a consequence, your only hope is not to trust, see, this is, this is the good news, and in order for news to be good, it really, I think, necessarily uh, is, is coming out of the very bad news. Uh, the very bad news that you're dead in your sins, you're helpless, there's nothing you can do to save yourself, there's no amount of good intentions that you can mount to make yourself right with God. And if you realize that, that feels very counterintuitive to our culture because we, we love ourselves if you're feeling that right now, if you're feeling a kind of helplessness, that's really a good place to be because you're realizing that you can't save yourself, only God can. And I think it's probably an indication that he's finally unclenching your hands from yourself so that he might cause your hands to 
grab onto Jesus and trust in what Jesus has done in his life, his death, his resurrection, his righteousness, his good works, not yours. His obedience, not yours. And that's the good news of the gospel. And if, if you haven't ever done that, do, do, do that right now. Don't wait. Do that right now. Believe in Jesus. And then Paul says this, and this is where we'll spend the balance of our time. He says in verse 2, do not be conformed. So as a result of this, do not be conformed to this world. And what does Paul mean by this world? One commentator that I respect writes that it is the sin-dominated, death-producing realm in which we are all born into. So the world isn't necessarily this physical terrestrial ball. Don't think about the world as the earth physically, but this, this culture, this, this, this realm, this age that we live in. And the Bible is very clear about this world that we live in. It is not a neutral world. Listen to the, the indictment of Scripture against this world, Ephesians 2, verses 1 and 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. So this kind of think of it as a river that's flowing, following the prince of the power of the air. The Spirit is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So there's this world. It's got a course. It's got a way. It's got a flow. And the one who's directing it is the prince of the power of the air. That's an allusion to our enemy, Satan. 2 Corinthians 10 Verses 3 through 5, for though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. So the world has strongholds. It's got fortresses. We destroy arguments in every lofty opinion, verse 5, raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. And so there are these fortresses, these citadels of the world, and they are against God. They are arguments. They're lofty opinions, and they are raised against the sovereignty and the authority of God who is the one that created them. Then in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 and 11, Paul says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against, and listen to this phrase, the schemes of the devil. So this world is this fallen, sin-dominating, death-producing realm. It's controlled by Satan. It's attacking the authority and knowledge and wisdom of God, and it's, 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 it's offensive is these particular schemes of the devil. And I think every age has particular schemes. What are the schemes, the particular ways that the devil in our age is wanting to conform us? This is where I want us to gain some wisdom from this passage. I want us to understand how the world in our time and age is wanting to conform us into its image as opposed to us being conformed into the image of Christ. I think that there has been a kind of slow, subtle, especially in our age, in our generation, a progressive shift of authority from authority that is outside of us to an authority that rests inside of us. In a book by a Presbyterian professor and pastor named Carl Truman. It's an excellent book called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Uh, 
I've been reading it. Uh, Robert and a few other guys on staff have been reading it. It's a slow, thick read, uh, but it is worth it, and I'm working my way through it slowly. And in this book, Truman talks about, and he's building on the work of other people in centuries past, about how there are really two, two ways of, of viewing the world. One is to view, and this is kind of the way that pre-modern man viewed the world. Now follow me here. I don't mean to bore you with this philosophical talk, but I think, it's, I think it's important for you to understand, I think, what Paul is wanting to awaken us to in verse 2. That there's two ways of viewing the world. One is that order, we're kind of born into a world that has order. That, you know, it's obviously created. There's obviously, whether a person is a Christian or not, there's just kind of this sense that there is a creator. And we see this through civilizations, through history, that there's this sense that there is an order and an authority outside of us. That's one way of viewing the world. Probably up to this point, the most dominant way of viewing the world. But in the last decades and century or so, there's been a shift to viewing the world not as having a kind of implicit order to it that is governed by some higher being, but that the world is really kind of a blank slate. It's kind of a, 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 just a, a composite of raw material, and we are able to make meaning. We're able to give meaning to the world by what we do or how we impose ourselves on the world. Here's a kind of example of how we see this kind of slow progression. Before the Industrial Revolution, a farmer would wake up in the morning and he was basically dependent on the rain cycles, whether or not there was rain. And, and you know, they could do the best they could and you would keep your, your, your oxen healthy and, you, you know, you do your best you can to plant the, the soil and tend the soil as best you can. But you were, you were in a sense, kind of dependent and beholden on forces outside of yourself in this natural world that is governed by some sort of higher being. And there's a kind of humility that's developed in that. But as we've progressed, especially in the past century or so, and we have all these advancements in technology, it's affected us a bit. And now we can manipulate the natural world to some degree. In fact, I live in a place. No, actually, I live here in Columbus, Georgia. But I grew up in a place in, in the desert in California where it never rains. It never rains. You know that song, It Never Rains in Southern California? It's, you know why that song is a song? Because it's true. It never rains. And I live in, I grew up, I live here. I grew up in the bottom of a basin in the desert and it never rains. But my hometown is one of the most agriculturally rich places in the nation because they have piped. We've dug a trench to canal from the Colorado River that irrigates the desert and causes carrots and lettuce and alfalfa and all sorts of things to grow in the wintertime when the Midwest is frozen over. And so we can sort of manipulate our, our world. And now that's a good thing for a farmer to be able to do that. But the point is, and the point in Truman's book is, is that these advancements in technology, these advancements in the modern world have slowly discipled us and persuaded us that we are in much more control of the world and our lives than we actually are. 
Now, I am not saying that advancement in technology is an innately bad thing. But I am saying that this fallen, sin-dominated, death-producing realm takes this technology, takes the common grace of the advancement of the internet and all of the comforts of modern life that we have, and it slowly, subconsciously, disciples this world into this mindset that we are in control. And here's the progression, here's the movement that happens in the psyche of modern man, is that when we feel like we're in control, now we feel like we have authority, and authority now is no longer outside of us, Authority now, slowly, progressively, imperceptibly, exists inside of us, which primes the pump then for what we've seen in the last 40 or 50 years in our culture of this, what Truman calls in his book, expressive individualism, this this revolution, sexual revolution in the 60s and 70s. Some of you lived through that. And now we see it in the absolute absurdity, the absolute tragic absurdity of our culture now where we have a president of the United States who on the campaign trail says that he thinks a a young child as early as eight years old who is a created being somehow has the sort of innate authority to choose their own gender. And here's, not only is it just absolutely absurd that somebody would say that, but that the majority of the populace would find that to be an acceptable idea. And what's happened? We have moved slowly, progressively, to an authority that now rests inside of us. And the reason it is plausible is because, friends, we all, what, the reason why somebody can say that, running for the most powerful office in the world, and not be laughed off the stage, is because the tenants, listen to me carefully, the tenets, the, the underlying philosophical assumptions of that worldview doesn't just exist out in the world. It's taken root in our hearts as well. Now, it may not express itself in some sort of radical embracing of transgenderism or some sort of same-sex attraction lifestyle as being okay, but it is a kind of selfishness, a kind of self-centeredness that we all just sort of instinctively at least agree with philosophically, even if we don't like the expression of it in the outside world. And so there's this movement from authority in the creator to authority in the creature. And when I think about Romans chapter 12, verse 2, where Paul says, do not be conformed to this world. See, most of, you know, we're still sometimes in the church, we think 20 or 30 years behind. We think now We think of things that people do. Don't be conformed to that. You know, the old joke, don't drink, smoke, or chew, or go with boys or girls that do. 
as if sin is something that happens out there. It's something that we do. But now this movement of authority now has taken sin and it's taken it from things that we do and it's made it people that we are. It's an identity. And that's why people can say, well, I am this type of Christian or I'm a, I'm a homosexual Christian or I'm a transgender Christian or I'm a this or that. Friends, these things are patently ridiculous. But the reason why this has happened at such a rapid speed is because much of our population, maybe even many Christians, have bought into the philosophical assumptions of the authority of self. And we have built a kind of church culture in our country that is back to, actually based on this, a seeker-sensitive movement. Give me what I want. I want this. I want that. I remember when we started this church, I had a, a, a friend t- tell me, she was a neighbor of ours and a, a, a lovely person, and she said to me, Brad, um, boy, I'd love to come to Crosspoint um, when you guys started up, but um, let me know when you have a Saturday night service because we really like having Sundays to ourselves. <laughs> and you know what? I was, I was like, oh, because I was like, oh, maybe, maybe we should have a Saturday night service. Because we're just, we're all, these assumptions that we have, like just, I, serve me, serve me, serve me. And I think that's what Paul is saying here. And friends, this is, this is like Romans chapter 1 coming true. Listen to Romans chapter 1, verses 22 through 25. Paul, this is Paul's indictment of humanity. And we are seeing this lived out probably more clearly than ever, at least certainly in the history of my lifetime. He says about humanity Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served. This is the, this is the important part. It's all important, but this is the point. They worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And we look at that and we say, yeah, yeah, no, those people out there, those, those, there's terrible sinners out there, those people, that particular, that the LGBTQ lobby, this, those liberals, whatever. And friends, but friends, we have this in us as well. We want to worship and serve ourselves as well. We just sort of whitewash our selfishness with kind of righteous language. And I'm not equating some of these horrible public sins. I'm not saying there's an absolute moral equivalency between the selfishness maybe of the seeker-sensitive movement and these ridiculous, absurd sexual ethics. But I am saying that at the root of it is this same drift, the progression that leads us to the worship of self. And this shift is not just in the world, it's in us too. Subconsciously, it grows us up into this idea that God is there to serve me. And I can affect the outside world. And when it doesn't go like I want it to, it angers, it frustrates me, and I bounce around from place to place. So this is, the, this is ironically enough, I think this is the, the underpinnings of the prosperity gospel. 
It runs along the same track. These people that we see trying to speak things into existence, what is this? It's a kind of worship of self. That we have some sort of authority. And we look at prosperity gospel preachers and we roll our eyes and say, how can people believe that garbage? But, but it's in us too. It's in us too. And the burden on my heart, and I, I think the burden of Romans chapter 12 verse 2 is that we see this and we resist this and we not be conformed to the image of this world. It, it just it seeps in our hearts and it quietly, slowly, subtly creates a kind of self-orientation. And friends, I got to tell you, um, I, I feel it in my own heart. Um, I think it's no secret that these past two years have been a challenging couple years for our culture and certainly for our church, all churches, not just our church. Uh, and there, there, there's this kind of frustration that I felt, which hasn't been a purely God-honoring frustration. It's maybe more of a frustration with the culture around me, our politics, maybe people in the church who are fussing about this, that, and the other. And it's, a, it's evidence of how we have taken the authority, the sovereignty that should exist outside of us, and now because our cages are being rattled just a little bit, just a little bit, we absolutely freak out and get frustrated and just kind of throw a pity party. And I, I see that in myself a little bit. And I, I see it in our church a little bit to some degree too, just a kind of like a, a spiritual apathy that has been produced because of COVID. I know you're here, and you're like, Brad, don't beat up on us, we're here. <laughs> no, I, I got it, I got it. But friends, some of us are just so upset at, at the government. And I am too. I am too. But there's a kind of way of being angry at the world around us which actually belies our selfishness, not actually a true pursuit of righteousness. And then some of us, uh, I, don't, I don't think it's any of you that are necessarily here, but some people that have just kind of faded away, sadly have faded away, have kind of given into a kind of, I think a kind of selfish, idolatrous, sinful fear. And at the root of it all, is, 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 I think, evidence of the fact that we are probably much more conformed to the world than we might like to admit. And then, I think, it, if I could just say it pastorally and just humbly, like, I think it's produced in a lot of us a kind of spiritual laziness and apathy. Like, this, this thing about, like, we're joking about children's ministry. Um, and I don't know. And I, we just haven't been able to crack this nut. You know, we, we have a couple hundred children in this church. And, it, and we have a, a bunch of members. And for some reason, the last couple years, through COVID, where we are now, it's been very difficult to get 
some, not all, some members in this church to serve in children's ministry and to do their part. And I'm going to own some of that. Like, the, like some of that's poor leadership. <laughs> I don't know. But God has blessed us. Like we, we're a church of six, 700 people on a Sunday. We've got like 200 children here. That's a really high ratio. That's amazing. That's wonderful. We have the opportunity to like roll up our sleeves and invest in children and help them know the gospel so that they aren't conformed to this world. It's our reasonable service. And, and it seems like for the past year, we have had to scratch and claw and beg and get on our knees and do silly stuff to try and get you just to kind of re-engage. Not all of you, not all of you. Some of you are doing yeomans-like work. But if you are a member of this church and you're not serving in children's ministry. I just, I plead with you to consider that because what happens is occasionally we'll have, not occasionally, every Sunday, we'll have visitors come. They'll have a boatload of children. Praise God for families with a boatload of children. They'll come and they won't be able to check their children into a room because we have not enough people serving. And that's, ah, that's, that, that stings. And I, I just, I don't, Help, help us understand, like, we, we need to do better. You need to do better. I need to do better. But friends, I can't help but think that some of this isn't because we have just sort of allowed ourselves to be grumpy, comfortable, and selfish. I could be wrong. But I see it in my own heart and I think I see it in us a little bit as a church. And gosh, man, the, 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 op- <laughs> the opportunity. Do you realize how good God has been to us in this church? And I want to stop like you're like, Brett, geez, glad I came to church today. Jeez. I mean, well, lay off, man. I mean, what happened to you in South Africa? <laughs> When's your next trip? You know, <laughs> I, I get it. I, I get it. This is such a good church. Like, this is such a good church. Man, like, we have, God just gives us just resources and people, and it's just, praise God, people from every walk of life. We've got rich and poor. We've got different ethnicities. We've got different... Streams of life, we've got military and civilians. We, 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 we've got all sorts of different people here. And God's doing something unique here, not because of us, but in spite of us. And we have this, we have this great privilege to, to do life together and to roll up our sleeves. And in light of everything that God did in, in the gospel in Romans chapter 1 through 11, well, man, give yourself to God Give yourself to God. It's your reasonable service. Present your bodies. Lean forward. Be part of the church. If you've been here for a while and you're not a member, join the church. Come to the membership class. If you're, if you're just attending, join and serve and get to know people. And it's hard and it's messy and it's worth it. But God does beautiful things in that. And like he's doing something peculiar and unusual and good here. So let's, let's realize that. Let's, let's chasten ourselves and let's go for it, man. Let's go for it. 
because he has done all this, therefore, because of the mercies of God, present yourselves to God. What does that look like for you? Uh, this is not a children's ministry service stump speech. Maybe it, maybe it kind of went into that. But this is, this is what, come on, lean forward. Lean forward. Don't be conformed to the image of this world. Don't be a, a self-worshipping, self-authoritizing Christian. Give yourself to God and his people. And he will do beautiful things with your life and us. Amen. Lord, help us now. Respond. Take my words and use them as you see fit. Anything that I have said that's wrong or had the wrong spirit, let it fall to the ground and give my hearers grace. And anything, Lord, that was good and right and noble and from your spirit, use it, Lord, and stick it fast to our hearts and make us more like Jesus. What a privilege, what a privilege, what a privilege to, to know the Lord and to serve the Lord and to be in a healthy church. What a privilege, God. Forgive us of our self-worship. Forgive us of our selfishness and, and stir in us a desire to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God, not because of our holiness, but because of Jesus' holiness, which is our reasonable service, our rational worship. Do it, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.